Hello and welcome to the Strength Save Podcast. Strength Save is a podcast where two nerds talk about their journey to live healthier lives and the games they love. During the first couple of episodes, you'll hear us refer to the podcast as Slothcast, or the podcast yet to be named. When we recorded those episodes, we hadn't decided on a name yet, so we just wanted you to be prepared. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope it helps. Hello and welcome to the Slothcast, your weekly source of the most common combination, fitness and nerddom. Going together like chocolate and peanut butter, pizza and pepperoni, and all of those other great combinations we love. Here with me, as always, for the second week in a row, is the supreme authority on all things keto, Christopher Zumsky. Hey, Chris. Well, thank you. Thank you. And now we have soundboard. And oh, I will God, not. Help us all. <laughs> and I told him I was like, "Listen, I'll restrain myself." So, I I fully expect you to not restrain yourself, and it is going to be fucking wonderful. Ah, uh, thank you, thank you. I might restrain myself. We'll see, folks. I got so many options now. <laughs> it's just it is sensory overload with all of the one soundboarding. Ah, uh, you know what uh, I don't. You know what I don't have on the soundboard yet. The Emmys play them out music. <laughs> oh no, we're definitely gonna have to get that because uh-huh. I think we'll constantly need to play ourselves out. Yeah, to the next segment, please. Shout out to Voice Mod, uh, this new toy that Chris has. Oh gotten. yeah, they got my money already. So thanks, guys. <laughs> I have not purchased it yet. So if Voice Mod hears this and wants to send me a free subscription, or uh, or or refund my cash, that's cool too. What's that voice mod? <laughs> no, they're not going to do it. Sorry. Yeah, I, I figured it was probably, uh, it was worth a try. Shot in the dark. So how are you doing, Chris? Oh, man, I am. Um, long day at work, and now we're doing our hobby, which we wish was our work. God, I would have so much energy for this. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, speaking of energy, I'm, uh, how, what? Let's talk about our weight loss journey so far, Blaine. How how are you doing? I actually, as of a few days ago, hit twenty pounds. Well, there you uh, go. Lost, so it's going pretty well. I took a, this past weekend was a keto break for me, mostly because if you you if you are from the Philadelphia area and listening to this, you will know the struggle that I had to deal with. The gobbler is back at Wawa. Oh God! <laughs> so I I had to. I've been trying like every three weeks or so to take a weekend where like not going crazy and doing disgusting things to myself, but like allowing myself to have some carbs. You got to release the pressure off. Yeah. You got to have, you got to have the, like a day every two weeks or so where you just kind of like, you know what? I'm going to have some bread today or I want to have 32 beers, you know, just little, little things. (laughs) Not that One, last two, part. That second part's 30, a no-no. But uh, hey, for the for, uh, Blaine, this podcast is obviously going to be reaching coast to coast. We got fans in Dubai, Ireland, Afghanistan, 
parts of Siberia. Will you describe the hot mess that is a gobbler to certain people? Because oh, oh God, yes, I can. Uh, so the gobbler, uh, it, I, I learned at some point that apparently this is like a regional thing, but not the gobbler specifically, but the concept of the Thanksgiving leftover sandwich. Really? I tried to explain that to someone from California, uh, and they were like, like, "What? What the fuck are you talking about? Like, what is this thing?" And it's just in my family, it's been a tradition since I was a kid where. When you have Thanksgiving leftovers, you get two slices of white bread, uh, and you throw them leftovers on the white bread. Now, um, I oddly enough hadn't heard about that until I was in college, and I was dating a lovely Irish girl up in oh, somewhere in north the northeast of New Jersey, and she's like, "Oh, we're gonna do leftover sandwiches. You know, come to my house tomorrow." I'm like, "The f- what the." F- are you? T- oh, sorry. Hold on. What the f- are you talking about? Leftover sandwiches? Because well, I think my family just ate it all. Or also, I think half of my immediate family, we don't do the food touching, or at least I don't mix and match my food. Okay. Normally. So yeah, that is probably a nightmare. The leftover sandwich is a nightmare scenario for you. Then. Well, it, you know what? It's not a gross out thing for me. It was just like, I guess I'm weird about how I organize my life and how I do things. I'm like, all right, well, it's time to eat the potatoes. I've eaten all the potatoes. Now it's time for the turkey. I've eaten all okay. the turkey. It's I guess I'm just not into chaos as much as other people, I guess. I don't know. Interesting. And I'm I I'm similar when it comes, like when I'm eating my Thanksgiving dinner, I do usually do that where it's like one thing at a time, although everything is smothered in gravy. Well, how else is it supposed to be? <laughs> but then, like, the leftover sandwich is like very much a like next day tradition. Like, uh, all right, we've got all this turkey, we've got all of this stuffing, all of this random stuff. Oh, yeah. No, for me, that, that, that is also a delight, though not a big cranberry sauce fan with the rest of it. I just don't, I just don't do that. Yeah, I've I'm very picky about cranberry sauce. I thought I didn't like it for a long time, and then I had like Good. real homemade cranberry sauce, where like you cook down cranberries. I was about um, to say it's not, not a the gelatinous, gel- not the shit that they used in the movie The Blob to eat people, and that exactly. takes the form of the can as it f- just flumps out onto the plate. Yep. Yeah, that Whoa. is. I still can't do that kind of cranberry sauce. <laughs> Um, so for those of you that don't live near a Wawa or know what is, that is <laughs> convenience uh, probably, store, probably a large chunk of you because Wawa while gaining, uh, some foothold in areas outside of Southeastern PA, it is very much a Southeastern PA thing. The gobbler is a sandwich they introduced maybe about 10 years ago. That's only available. Originally it was pretty much just November. And now they've like moved that back a little bit to like early to mid October. I, I was about to say it's gotten on the level of like pumpkin spice, where it's almost yeah. like a good chunk of winter. Yeah, basically all of fall, the gobbler is available, and it is a a Philadelphia style long roll, which has the traditional gobbler is cranberry sauce stuffing and roasted turkey and gravy on a long roll. I like to add mayo and American cheese to mine. And starting this year, they have given you the option of instead of stuffing, you can choose either mashed potatoes or mashed sweet potatoes. Ooh, mashed sweet potatoes? Let me tell you, I have become a huge fan of the sweet potato in the most recent year. And hey, 
seeing as we're supposed to be talking about keto stuff right now, well, I guess we kind of are talking about keto break stuff. If you have a hankering for a potato on keto, I would eat the sweet potato before you eat the real potato. Or not the real potato, just a standard. Yeah, sweet potato is definitely uh, a slightly better choice. I've been getting into rutabagas as a potato sub- substitute. Uh, rutabaga. Uh, I, I guess it's just um, because of me having to work and commute a bunch, I don't uh, always get too fancy with the foods I make all the time. The one thing I do get fancy with is my crock pot cooking when I'm on keto, though. So let me tell you about this thing I just made, Blaine, because you will love it. It is a chicken taco soup. Perfect for the fall season. I do. I like chicken. I like tacos. And I like soup. Yes. Uh, So you're three for three there. So it's a super easy recipe. It's... Uh, say if you got a standard crock pot, you get two chicken breasts, two eight-ounce blocks of cream cheese, four cups of chicken broth, then uh, two cans of, I think it's Retail, at least that was the brand I used, and it's a like Spanish-style diced tomatoes, and they call for green pepper or like green chilies. I did one can of the green chilies, but I did discover they make uh, one with habanero mixed in, Blaine. And that sounds ooh. like a nice little, nice little zing. Yeah, nice little punch. And you also add a one ounce packet of like dry ranch dressing for a little bit more zip in there. Okay. And the one thing I added on, which I truly appreciate, because like you're supposed to use like a Mrs. Dash Southwest blend spices and stuff, which I did, but I also added just. Uh, like uh, Canada Chipotle peppers oh, yeah. that you can get in the international section of most supermarkets. And and you just put it all in there and let it simmer for like six to eight hours. That does sound very delicious. The The only thing you got to do when you take it out, you take the chicken out after the fact, shred it up. One thing you might run into, folks, throwing cold cream cheese can cause it to like ball up into small little bits as it's heated with all the other proteins in there. If you run into that issue, when you pull the chicken out to shred it up, all you got to do is take the soup itself, put it in a blender, and just whip it up real quick. And the consistency is fine and good throughout. And it's also a great way to have like a thick, creamy soup, which you usually can't get on keto. Yeah, that can be a little bit tricky. Um just because to get a really good creamy soup, you generally need a lot of dairy, which comes with the side effect of lots of carbs. Because for whatever reason, we need to put sugar in all of our dairy. Well, here in America, we just <laughs> hook up the corn syrup dispenser to everything. Just just one, one suction cup on the cow's teat and the other on big old jug of corn syrup. Oh, yeah, just a drum that they're sitting there pumping at the same time. But yes, so for those of the faint of tongue, though, don't use the habanero. Just use the green chili because I made it and I ate it and I was like, holy crap, this is hot. It's excellent, but hot. Yeah, that's and I guess that's also the nice thing about the cream cheese is it would definitely help neutralize it a little bit. But like habaneros have a pretty solid kick. To oh, them. yeah. Well, you know what else I did with this to make it even better keto and overall? 
little dollop of sour cream, a couple slices of avocado thrown on top, oh, and yeah. some, some just more cheese sprinkled on top, because why not? Of course. And if you can just if you if you're allowed to sprinkle cheese on everything. Then you should. That's just that's just common sense there, folks. Uh, that's a free tip here from your friendly sloths. Yes. Uh, if you can sprinkle cheese on it, sprinkle cheese on it. I was watching, and obviously this is not keto-friendly overall. I've been watching a, uh, a horror-themed baking challenge. And the one guy for one of the challenges made a Mexican bread pudding that had diced up cheddar cheese in it to add like a savory creamy element to uh, the bread pudding, which I am very intrigued by. Um, Because again, if you can add cheese, you probably should. Yeah. I don't, mm, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. That sounds really delicious and is a perfect segue into what we wanted to talk about as far as our keto stuff this week being some just good, back pocket recipes to have because it can be it can be challenging and i think any kind of dieting is challenging for adults um because we do have jobs and lives and it can be tough to resist the siren call that is just stopping at a mcdonald's on your way home from work to get a hamburger to shove in your face or even ordering something slightly more healthy but still not great for you in the grand scheme of things to be delivered to you via doordash or grubhub not uber east but that's a story for another time um unless they feel like sponsoring us then we'll have a chat with them (laughs) oh i don't i did uh, (laughs) prove them prove them wrong uber eats give us your money you know what you sound like you need blaine a drink Uh, yeah whatever whatever that just got cracked open was it is uh i don't know if we talked about it uh last week i know we mentioned like for those people who want to do keto but also want to uh, uh consume a beverage every so often i had a corona premiere and that's what I just cracked open. 2.6 grams of carbs. Not terrible. Yeah, that's not a... I mean, can, if... You can have a couple of those and still eat your kind of regular carb allocation for the day. Like, you, if you got an itch for, like, a beer, then go right ahead. I found it's, like, it's nice occasionally just be able to scratch that itch. Now, listen, I am, or at least I was pre-taking this diet, a one of uh, what would, might be called a beer snob. Uh, so me willingly say I drink Corona Premier. My friends just glare at me, except for Blaine, because Blaine just drinks PBR and he just it's doesn't true. give a shit. Um, but uh, being a beer snob is not a, a privilege one has uh, if they want to drink beer and remain on keto. Correct. Uh, because you basically have Michelob Ultra or Corona Premier or White Claw. <laughs> no, screw White Claw. And you know, it's funny, the, the Corona premieres actually have less carbs than the White Claw, I believe. Interesting. But you know, oh, you know what? I want to make a plug right now, and I really hope these people come. The wonderful people at Swaza. Oh, oh yes. The Swaza hard seltzer. They actually use tequila, folks, and not whatever swill every other hard seltzer place uses. It is very good. Uh, hands down, the best hard seltzer I've had. And I've had quite, I've, I have become a pretty basic white person and have tried a lot of hard seltzers now. Oh, yeah, I've dabbled. 
I've dabbled um, in a lot of the hard seltzers, and none of them hold a candle to Swaza. Yeah, some of the like more craft brand, like vodka based hard seltzers are good. Uh, Two Brothers makes a really good one. But even Two Brothers, as good as it is, is still pales in comparison to the Salsa Lime. Yes, uh, specifically the Lime. They have three. Lime, superb. Mango, okay. Grapefruit, it's one of the few things that has grapefruit flavoring that I'll actually drink. <laughs> yeah, the grapefruit's fine. I, like, I think that it, like, the mango and the lime, I would definitely choose over any vodka-based hard seltzer. Oh, easily. Um, the grapefruit, there are a couple hard seltzers of the more traditional variety that I think I would pick over the grapefruit. But as someone who hates grapefruit flavor with a passion... The salsa grapefruit is actually uh, shockingly drinkable. Oh yeah, it's it's okay. Like I sit there, I'm like, no, oh, this well, it doesn't really taste like grapefruit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it tastes like, uh, but it is not grapefruit because I know I have a viscerally negative reaction to grapefruit, and I don't get, have that reaction when I drink <laughs> the salsa grapefruit. So, yeah, the salsa is just it is uh, a league of its own. Oh yes. So some other uh, recipes that we've tried, some good tried and true, especially like it's nice to have recipes that are pretty quick and simple and that you can use for a lot of different things. So the one I mentioned to you that I've been experimenting with a lot lately is the chaffle, the C-H-A-F-F-E-L or C-H-A-F-F-L-E. I know how to use letters to form words. She's a um, he's a poet, ladies and gentlemen. A poet. Yes, the the hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt to get a master's degree in poetry obviously paid off. So, but so what what is in a chaffle? So the the basic just run of the mill chaffle. If you want like a breakfast waffle, it is mozzarella cheese and an egg and you do the ratio is about half a cup of cheese per egg and that makes you one waffle um, chaffle chaffle sorry please use the correct nomenclature so i literally you just put half a cup of cheese you break an egg in there you mix it up until the egg is kind of holding the cheese together as best it can and you throw it in a waffle maker and you cook it until it is brown and looks shockingly like a waffle But the nice thing with that is that it has kind of infinite iterations at this point. Like I said, that the mozzarella cheese and an egg gives you a very kind of basic flavor. Uh, If you put like a little bit of vanilla extract in there, you get just a straight up breakfast waffle. But you can like add some stuff. So if you add like a tablespoon of mayo to that equation, you get something that tastes very much like white bread um, and you can use it to make a sandwich. Or if you want to get fancy, you can put like bacon and jalapenos and use cheddar cheese instead of mozzarella cheese. And you get like a savory, spicy Mexican waffle that you could put some meat and salsa on and have a taco. And it's super simple. Like I said, half a cup of cheese, one egg, you throw it in, it is important to thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly grease your waffle maker because you're essentially just <laughs> burning, burning cheese on a waffle maker. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's an important, important note. Now, what kind of oil are you using? 
So I am for that generally using vegetable oil because it's got a nice high heat. uh, High burn. Yeah. You could probably use avocado oil to get some healthy fat in there. I would not use olive oil because the amount of time it needs to be on there. Olive oil is probably too low of a smoke point. Yeah. Um, But really any kind of oil, like put the amount you would put on your waffle maker to make waffles and then add the same amount again. Otherwise, the second you try to pull that thing off, it's just going to be a, a runny mess of cheese and egg. Yeah. Now, sadly, I don't have a waffle maker, so I won't be able to make a chaffle. I do think an old roommate of mine left a panini maker, so I wonder if that I could do something with that. Work. That might, yeah. I just you could to, probably even do it like a in a frying pan. Yeah, you could do a chanini. A chanini. You could do a Oh, we gotta, oh, we gotta market all this shit. Yeah. Damn it. All right, hold on. You could, uh, you could make so, a short a tortilla and just sp- spread the mix into a uh, into a pan. And get something that's kind of tortilla-like. Keto Nini. I'm going to send an email to our marketing department about that. Excellent. Yes, get on that. TM. You're in charge of marketing, by the way. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, God help us all. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the Keto Keto Nini and uh, the tortilla. T- TM copyright uh, the sloth yeah. boys yeah or whatever the hell we end up calling we still got to work on that part jeez Mary jo- okay we're pros yeah, so it's a good good bread substitute for when you want that like waffle at breakfast time or like I said it makes good sandwich bread mm-hmm. or like a taco substitute so it's just a good bread substitute it takes on it is it looks like a waffle when it comes out it tastes kind of like an eggy waffle. It's got some nice crunch to it because all that cheese caramelizes on the uh, on the waffle maker. <laughs> How much of a pain in the ass is it to clean the waffle maker after that? I'm curious. As long as you grease it well, it was not bad at all. Oh, I grease okay. like I had read an article and it it gave that same suggestion of like double the amount of oil you would normally put on. And because the egg is in there, it creates like a pretty solid thing that pulls out. And as long, like I said, as long as it's well oiled, there was not really any burnt cheese or anything left on That's good. on the waffle pans. So it's a good kind of all purpose back pocket recipe. Um, the other one that came to mind was the pizza dough that you made. Oh, yes. Dough, dough is a, a strong word for what that was. Uh, yeah. It was delicious. Yeah, that one was mostly mozzarella cheese with a couple eggs and some almond flour. And then you mix that. St- you mix the cheese. Well, first you microwave the cheese and you get it all nice and loose. And then you get the egg. You get the and you, and the almond flour. Like I mix that separate and then add it, and you just kind of like knead it all together. Then you just kind of smear it on wax paper until you get it like, depending upon if you like thick or thin dough, but nice, nice and out. Like getting some like flat bread, like oval looking thing going on there. Stick it in the oven at like what was it like? Four twenty-five or something for 10-15 minutes depending upon how your heat is and all that other crap golden brown that's what you're looking for golden brown pop any bubbles up for them you pull it out slather some sauce on there put more cheese on of course <laughs> and what other and any other topping 
and then put it in, and then you cook it until it looks like a pizza. <laughs> and it does end up looking shockingly like a pizza. Um, yes. And it ends up tasting... Shockingly uh, like a pizza. <laughs> yeah. I will say I, I tried a similar recipe before you came over and made that. And I put it in like a 12-inch cast iron skillet. So it was a slightly thicker crust. Mm-hmm. And it was all right. But as a thicker crust, uh, because of the almond flour, it took on a sort of like cornbready texture. So I definitely, if anyone's going to try it, I recommend going as thin as humanly possible. Even if you generally prefer a thick, thicker crust on your pizza, which I do, this recipe does not necessarily make a great thick crust pizza. Unless the idea of a pizza on top of a brick of cornbread sounds appealing to you. Because it wasn't bad. The consistency was just a little weird. Now, for me, if anyone were to... The recipe I used is basically the fathead pizza crust. The one other thing I did, using almond flour, I actually added an extra egg in. Which I think is why it was also not as cornbready as yours were. Yeah, it was definitely... I modified the version from what it was. Yeah, your crust was definitely a lot runnier than mine was. Like, mine was as close to a dough as you're going to get when most of your ingredients are eggs and cheese. Because I used less egg. And I think my the recipe I had found called for a little bit more almond flour. Yeah. So, so it looked kind of like a dough, and then I just dumped it into the cast iron skillet and pressed it down. Yeah. For me, I took three-quarter cup of almond flour, cracked an egg in there, just mixed it all together until the consistency was the same. And then I took the cup and a half of mozzarella cheese with two tablespoons of cream cheese, microwaved that, and then just took it out every like 30 seconds to a minute and just kind of kneaded it together until basically you get you remove the the shredded look of the mozzarella so it's like consistent then dump the egg and flour combo in there just mixed it all together by hand or if you don't have like the hands i have which is used to holding hot metal you might want to use a different thing instead of your bare hands then you take out that dough and then just, like I said, smear it on that wax paper and watch for it to get golden brown. And it is it is delicious. And it does uh, scratch the itch when you really because pizza is one of the like carb things that I really crave the most. Like I grew up in a family that ate a lot of pizza, uh, which is part of how I ended up with the figure that I ended up with. And so pizza is very much like a comfort of home kind of meal to me. And so it is one of the like few things in the world of carbs that I really crave. Yeah. And the great thing about it is it's one of those, it's simple enough. And in reality, if you were to call and order a pizza from somewhere, it takes you the same amount of time to make this pizza at home. If you have the ingredients as it would calling and having it delivered to your house. Yeah, because especially since you're not, since it's not a traditional dough that you need to give time for rising and all of that, like the dough comes together in like ten minutes tops, um, and then all of the rest is cook time. I think, and I think for us, like when we made it the one time we were hanging out, I think we it took more time for it to cool down 
Oh yeah. To a point where it was edible because it was literally just a, a bunch a, of hot cheese, a bunch of molten cheese. And so it needed to sit for a solid, like 20 minutes before we could like properly cut and serve it. Like it is spending almost as much time sitting on the counter cooling as it is getting put together and cooking. Yeah. The only thing you got to be cautious is with this one is if you're going to do it, make sure that whatever pizza sauce you get, you look at the amount of sugar in the sauce. Yeah, that is definitely important because there are a lot. I and mean, as as a vegetable go, uh, technically a fruit goes, tomatoes have a shockingly acceptable number of carbs. Like you can't eat a ton of tomato, but like straight up tomato is a pretty carb friendly vegetable. Hell, the next time we can make a white pie. Yeah, with Ooh. tomato slices on it instead. Ooh, that would be real good. But yeah, as soon as you start getting into those jarred sauces. Most most of them are fine, particularly if you're spending more than like three dollars on a jar of sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're, especially if you're buying like, and there's nothing wrong. I've had some very good like cheap generic brand tomato sauces, but those tend to be the ones that have a metric ton of sugar in them. And so you look at it, and it's like sixteen carbs a serving. When a tomato tomatoes are like three carbs a serving. Yep, just got to remember, folks, sugar is cheap. So if you're buying something inexpensive, most likely there's a bunch of sugar in it. (laughs) Yep, yeah, it is. And it's one of the things that makes keto a little bit trickier is you have to pay so much attention to any processed food you get because so much processed food, particularly in the U.S., is just lousy with sugar and carbs because carbs taste good and are cheap. And so uh, they just use that as a filler. <laughs> and wow, addictive. Who would have thought? Yeah. Oh, carbs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is just a couple like quick, easy back pocket recipes for our listeners. If you're thinking about getting into keto again, these are the kind of recipes that it's helpful to just have. And then you can riff off them because, you know, with a flatbread style crust, you can make so many things. And like I said about the chaffle and, is a, a good replacement for any kind of bread, really, or or carb-based dough thing. And you can riff on them and kind of make them your own every time you make them, which is certainly helpful because it can get overwhelming at times when you're like, oh, shit, I got it. Not only do I have to cook a meal now, but I have to make sure that, like, it doesn't have any carbs or it's as low-carb as possible. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Chris and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. It is a labor of love, and we really hope it helps you on whatever path you're on and helps you find some new games to check out. If you like what you've heard so far, please consider rating and reviewing us on whatever podcatcher you use. It really helps other folks find us. If you want to get in touch, we are at StrengthSavePod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at StrengthSavePod at gmail.com. Now, let's talk about some games. So, for those of you at home listening, uh, spooky season for you may have come and gone. But for Chris and I, spooky season is all year round. And so this this week we wanted to talk a little bit about some of our favorite horror things. Tabletop games, video games, movies, experiences, that kind of stuff. uh, Because we are both big fans of the horror genre and do a lot of horror gaming all year round. So even though spooky season this year has come and gone, 
there will hopefully be another spooky season next year. And uh, this might give you some ideas if you're not a standard horror person. Uh, this might give you some ideas for a horror one-shot the next time you want to do it. Or if you're like us and want to play horror games all the time, this might just be your next Saturday night. Let's be honest, all of 2020 has been spooky. <laughs> it's true, strange voice that came out of uh, Chris's haunted haunted microphone. Oh, God, I love this thing. <laughs> Oh, yes. 2020 horror. has been a horror show. What will 2021 hold? Maybe this will be out before then. We're not sure yet. <laughs> Who knows? It's a big old question mark. So, Chris, have you? What kind of horror, other than the ex- existential dread of 2020, have you experienced recently that has been a, a particularly cool <sighs> horror experience? A cool horror experience. Well, I've been watching like a lot of television horror, so I, I don't want to dip into that too much because we want to focus on games. I'm thinking probably my favorite because it also touches on my favorite movie franchise. Have you ever played Alien Isolation? I have not. Um, I have oh. actually not played any of the Alien video games. Which okay. Wouldn't recommend playing most of them. <laughs> Some of them are... Yeah, but no, don't worry about most of them. But Alien Isolation, it is actually like a sequel to the OG Alien because you play Ellen Ripley's daughter grown up looking for the black box for the Nostromo. Nice. So you go to this space station, a competitor to Wayland Utani, the primary corporation that, or at least they're like the Microsoft for computer relations, or maybe the Apple, like the big company. While this other company that has found said black box is like the, uh, you know, we use the Microsoft thing. If Wayland Utani is Microsoft, they are Linux. Okay, it's a good or uh, well, Linux is of a functions kind of properly though. So they're like some like Russian knockoff of Linux. <laughs> so you All know, right. if you remember, like if you remember the Alien movies, like the androids from Whale and Yutani looked like people, and you couldn't tell the difference. Like this company, they're all like white, like they look like mannequins that walk around. They okay, they just don't care. So you head to this space station on behalf of Whale and Yutani to recover the black box. And lo and behold, guess what? Aliens Are there xenomorphs? Oh, yeah. All over. Oh. <laughs> Shocker. But like the first movie, you can't really kill them. You can only hide from them, distract them. So you're in like that first person view, hiding under desks. And you can craft things, but you're crafting, like, a noisemaker to draw it away. Oh, okay. you might get that, like, quintessential flamethrower from the movie. But just like in everyone's favorite, not favorite, Alien 3, guess what? After a while, it doesn't fear the fire anymore. Mm. So it's got it, that kind of... It learns. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it hunts on, like, a randomized pattern and stuff. 
So if you start running around, you make more noise. It draws it to you. Oh, it's so good. It's definitely like one of those horror games that if you're on YouTube or something, you watch YouTubers play. I will have to check that out. I just added it to my Steam wish list too. I'm definitely going to try and check that out at some point. Oh, yes. Um, in a similar vein, I've been playing a lot of the tabletop game Mothership recently, which Mothership is a really interesting. It's part of the uh, OSR old school renaissance movement of tabletop games. So it's designed to be sort of a very stripped down, brutal system, but very specifically designed to tell alien style sci-fi horror stories. And what I what I love about the game is so there are in Mothership, there are four classes that you pick from and each class gives you some starting skills and modifies a couple of your starting attributes and stuff like that. But the four classes have different ways in which they interact with the stress system, which is how like horror is built in the game. So as you experience horrific things, you generally have to make either a fear save or a sanity save. Fear save saves are for things that are scary, but like explainable. Um, Insanity saves are for things that kind of defy any logical explanation. And if you fail the saving throw, your stress goes up by one and you have to make a panic check to see if you freak out. And so each class interacts with the panic or the like stress panic system in a different way. The only one that has a slightly positive interaction with it is the teamsters, the manual labor laborers of our future who, if they panic and have to roll on the panic table, they get to once per session roll a second time and take whichever result they prefer, um, which is basically just a way to save yourself from the fact that one of the options on the panic table is you die immediately of a heart attack. (laughs) Um, You have to have a lot of stress to reach that point, but it is feasibly possible to just die outright. The other three classes fuck with the rest of the party, (laughs) um, which is great. So if you are a Marine... If a Marine panics, everyone else in the party has to make a fear save. Because if you see the badass Marine with a giant gun freak out, uh, you probably are not in a good place. If you are a scientist and you fail a sanity save, everyone else around you just immediately gains one stress. Because as a scientist who understands the world logically, to be confronted with the vast unknown of space is not great. And then the last class is the android. And the androids start with, so like most people start with saves in the like 30 to 40% range. Androids start with an 85% chance to succeed fear saves. They just almost never get scared. But everyone in the presence of an android, because androids are so unnerving, if they have to make a fear save, they have to roll twice and take the worst result. (laughs) Um, Because it's just so unnerving to be about around androids and especially to see how like not flustered androids are by things that would normally horrify a human being. So I, I ran mothership not too long ago and it was amazing. Like stress overall, people weren't gaining a lot of stress early on um, because they had kind of split up and were like traveling around the ship in small groups as you do in horror movies. <laughs> Yeah, it was wonderful. They played right into my trap. And by the time that the monster had revealed itself, 
they all were kind of back together. And just the way that stress chains when a full party is together is so wonderful. And like everyone gained like four to six points of stress in a like 15 minute span of time. Um, Cause like the scientists saw the monster, which was requiring people to make sanity saves the first time they saw it. And like one of the scientists failed. So everyone immediately gained a stress and had to make a stress check. The, Marine failed his stress t- check, so he panicked. And so everyone around him had to make a, a, a fear save. And so some of them failed, which triggered other people to fail. And like everyone's making fear saves at disadvantage because there are androids around. And it just turned into this like beautiful nightmare of everyone just freaking the fuck out. <laughs> And it was great. It does such a good job of that, like, slow build of tension in horror where, like, you know, people gained a couple a stress point here or there for the first, like, hour and a half of the game. And then in the second hour, everything just went to shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sad I missed that on that one. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to play it again sometime. I've been playing in a game Saturday mornings, uh, and I'm playing the Android, which has been a lot of fun. Particularly when it comes to like moments where we have to make horror saves and explaining to everyone in excruciating detail like what is so weird about my character's reaction to horrific experiences. Oh god. I just remember when I was running the game and I had to you you were a android as well, I was everybody else, but I was also an android. <laughs> Yeah, in our uh, free league alien RPG. RPG play. Yeah, that's another one I, I would love to play again. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Free league did a great job with that, and that one's a little bit more robust for like campaign play. Yes. Um, whereas Mothership really, like, you can play campaigns of Mothership, but I think it really kind of is at its best as a one shot. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. Like, that's the one thing about horror. I guess as a art, well, horror as an RPG, I guess is probably the best way to look at it. There, are, it's better for one shots or short term things because trying to keep horror going is kind of difficult. Yeah, so much of what makes good horror stories, and this is whether it's a, a book or a movie or a game. So much of what makes horror, like what you need to make good horror is the like rising tension and then the release of tension and then the rise again. And this time it gets a little bit higher and then it drops and then it gets a little bit higher until you reach kind of the climax of the story. And that is manageable in a one shot when you have a week or like if you're not, if you're a game group, which most ad- we are we are privileged to have a game group as adults that plays almost every week a lot of a lot of grown-ups don't have time to do that so a lot of times there's two two weeks or a month between sessions mm-hmm. and when you have that kind of time even one week between sessions you're basically starting the next session with the tension at zero and you now then need to worry about like ramping it up again in a way that as a one shot, like it's going to end that session and you don't have to worry about like, all right, well now that we're back together with these same characters, how am I going to build up that tension again? 
Yeah, it's more of like I've been running Curse of Strahd, and I've found that the best way to do it is, even though technically Curse of Strahd is supposed to be, it's it's a horror campaign. In reality, I treat it more of like I don't want to go so uh, and say it's almost comedic most of the time. But it is mostly comedic most of the time. And then I just <laughs> like, but because that's the way I do it. And then I just do a hard turn on horror because perfect example, one of the players, uh, unbeknownst to everybody else had come to me. They're like, I was really hoping to change my class. I'm like, well, do you want to change your class or do you want like a new character? She's like, oh, I'll, I'll do a new character. That sounds more interesting. I'm like, all right, build your character. Let me know and tell me what day you want to, what session you're going to want to swap. She's like, oh, okay. So that day comes. And at this point in the campaign, they, yeah, they're at fifth level now, but they hadn't met the main antagonist yet, Straw. They've just met his minions. So they think they're in a town and it's safe. They come out and I pull some Silent Hill level shit you know, ominous fog, the rain starts picking up, lightning and thunder in the sky. And I have probably the worst person to do it role for giving directions because they're like, oh, we're going to head to the thing. I'm like, all right, well, you're leading the way, right? He's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, give me a roll. And he like, Nat wants it. So I have them go in the complete opposite direction. And the next thing you know, I have the character that I plan on killing off. I'm like, Hey, make a uh, charisma saving throw. Fails. Next thing you know, she gets controlled. And the mist begins to form around her. And the next thing you know, and finally the characters meet. Strahd is, you know, hand gently caressing her throat. And they're like, I go to attack. I'm like, all right, try it. They roll. I'm like, we're not going to initiative yet. You're you're trying to attack. He takes the, the person he's charmed and... They just step in the way and take the hit. So they back off and they're mm. kind of like, oh, what do we do now? And I have some monologue and stuff going on. And they basically undermine some of the plot points that he was going for. So all of a sudden, all that they see is his hand just punch right through the PC's chest. And in his hand is her heart. And he just crushes it and then drags it back out. And of course, the paladin goes charging and he gets whammied with a freaking lightning bolt. And as everybody's eyes are readjusting from the blur, Strahd is gone. Oh, that is good. And their friend is dead. So that was like, everyone's like, oh, that was awesome. I'm like, yeah, I guess I can do horror, but I can't do it in long stretches. At least that's me personally. Yeah, and I think Curse of, Curse of Strahd, I, as an adventure, I really like. And I mean, I, I, it is no secret that I've always been a fan of Ravenloft. Yeah. Um, Fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, by the way, for the people who don't know what the hell we're talking about. Yes, it is one of the. It came out probably about five years ago now. They're releasing a updated version of the game in a, a week or two from when we're talking. Uh, so it'll definitely be out by the time anyone's listening to this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but Curse of Strahd does a really great job of understanding that aspect of horror as an ongoing campaign and how it's impossible to continue to keep the tension from session to session. So it has a lot of really great horror encounters that 
are easily one session long. Like you're, you might even be able to get two of them in in a single session. So you're able to have, and uh, we've seen this in, especially in recent history and horror movies, like horror comedy works really well because comedy does such a good job of diffusing tension that you can use the like diffusing elements of comedy as a natural way to reduce tension before building it again. Um, And so Curse of Strahd has a lot of like kind of interesting semi-comedic encounters. And then it has encounters like, and I won't spoil too much about like what this particular encounter, but like the old bone grinder encounter is horrifying. Or you know what's super unsettling, or at least I made it unsettling for my characters? When they go to the Abbey. Oh, of St. Markovia? uh, St. Markovia's Abbey. And interact with the abbot and his creation. Yeah, that is a a real unsettling encounter. Um, Also, even just when they first get to Barovia, the encounter at the church with the priest and his son. Yeah, for my game, they kind of skated over that a bit because we have one character that the moment he hears that children are in trouble just wants to run directly at the problem, which is awesome because that's all I need to do to point them (laughs) in a direction I want them to go. And children in Barovia are in peril quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny. I actually talked about children in peril the last session. He's like, oh, we got to go do it. And then I had somebody else just save them instead. I'm like, oh, no, the kids are safe. Yeah, the, the, the new shop owner did that. They're like, the one guy's like, he did? I'm like, yeah, you can do other things here. You have other choices. Yes. Saving the children isn't all of them. I'm going to keep using that as an option, though. <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's a good hook uh, if you know that it's going to get the party moving. Yeah, it's a shame they glossed over that, because that encounter was a lot of fun. That was one of the encounters. When I ran a 5th fifth, fifth edition Ravenloft game, I didn't run Curse of Strahd, but I borrowed a handful of encounters, including Old Bone Grinder and the encounter at the church in Barovia. And running that church encounter was so much fun, because I had just created this kind of awful, horrifying voice for the sun. And so, like... Every now and then I would just interject things from the sun in this voice. And everyone at the table was like, yeah, this is not okay. A little bit more high pitched, but kind of, yeah. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Uh, this is a that one's a little adventure zony. <laughs> Oh, this soundboard is gonna scare. Yeah, that is actually pretty close to uh, that, but screechy. Ah, is high pitched enough for you? That's too high pitched. That's just disturbing. Oh, I don't like that laugh. Anyway, yeah, so. But yeah, so I, I think that Curse of Strahd is a great blueprint of how you do horror as a campaign. RPG-wise, at least. Yeah. yeah. Where you have horror encounters, but the overall game is not horror. Um, because if you try to make the whole game just a horror game, 
I think everyone's just going to end up disappointed. At that point, it's, it's exhausting, really, if you think about it. Because trying to keep that level of... If you're able to sustain that level of tension, like people are not going to enjoy it after yeah. a certain point. And it requires a level of a, of commitment from the players that, like, I have never met a group that could do that. Where, like, the second you sit down to the table every week, it's, all right, we are now immersed in horror. No jokes, no table talk, nothing. It's just not how people play games. And you can do that to some extent in a one shot when like that's part of the selling point. Yes. But you still need, like you said, there still needs to be that release. Yeah. And I, I don't, I think you get too much of a release in campaign, like between sessions. Um, and like you said, it would just get exhausting to constantly be on all the time, all the time. So I think the way you do it, if you want to play a horror campaign is you have, it's actually a fantasy campaign or a sci-fi campaign or whatever kind of campaign with horror elements. And then, you know, fairly regularly you run encounters that last no more than the session that you're sitting down to play that are horrific. And then you can treat that almost as like its own individual one shot in a series of connected one shots. And then you introduce like comedic elements that let them let their guard down and feel safe. Um, and then you drop them into another horror campaign or another <laughs> horror adventure. Um, and you just do that a whole bunch. And it is, I think, so much worse. Yes, yes. In well, a good way. Yeah, Wor- you need- worse in a good way. Yeah, you, you, it's enjoyable having that jarring thing happen occasionally where they just come out of nowhere. Okay, uh, how about you? Uh, we haven't, you haven't, uh, we've, we've done the Mothership, which I guess is technically a board game, right? Uh, RPG. It's an RPG. How, how about board game? We haven't touched board game. We've done video game, we've done RPG. What about a board game, horror-wise? Because that, that's not really a thing, right? Because you can't... Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, you can't, I don't want to say you can't, but it is much harder to build tension in a board game that is like kind of pure mechanics and strategy. Yeah. I mean, you Um, you can have horror themed board games. Yeah. You could have tension because of the challenge of the game, but it's not horrifying at all. I guess because the difference is with that, you aren't generally taking ownership of a character. Like, yeah. you're not inhabiting the shoes of the poor woman being hunted by an alien in the space station. You're not creating a character from, from whole cloth and putting them in the world and being that person in an RPG. Yeah. And you have, like, you have the Betrayal franchise, which is, to some extent, like, it has role-playing game elements. And, like, generally the people I know who play those games tend to get super into the concept of playing their characters in a way that, like, it is not in any way, shape, or form a mechanical element of that game. It's no, just no. something that we, as people who play a lot of RPGs, tend to do. The one I was trying to figure out, the game, the one game that I could think of that is kind of both horrifying to play and a horror board game. And that was um, the game we played with Josh, uh, Haka Ona. Okay, yeah. It's a Japanese horror. Yeah, you know what? Uh, okay. Because it, it's it, based on the, like, you know, horror house Japanese movie style, The Ring, The Grudge. 
Yeah, because that's a little different because that's one of those asymmetrical games where one of the people you're playing with is the bad guy. Yeah, and that had the like the element of like when you move, you had to stack the pieces, and if they fell, then Hakaona got her turn. Yeah, so that added the tension in. So yeah, there was like an actual physical tension at the table because anytime you tried to do something, you had to place a piece. And they had like different little nibs and stuff on it to make yeah. building the tower difficult. Um, of and it. if it fell, everyone's turn ended and the monster got to take their turn. Yeah, think of it as reverse Jenga, but the tower falls and you get it. But you know what? Now that I think about it, I guess Dread would be a good example of a game that's horror and is kind of, if you consider Jenga a board game. Yeah, that's an interesting one because it is like it's an RPG. But it also uses a classic board game as its randomizer. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, so jumbling a, towers. <laughs> jum, jumbling towers, tumbling towers, depending on which generic version you get. Um, so yeah, Dread is a good example of one that like kind of perfectly merges the two, where it's like, by the books, it's an RPG. But it uses a tumbling tower as its narrative element. And that tumbling tower creates so much tension. And for me, as someone who doesn't like Jenga to begin with, Jenga itself is kind of a horror game for me. Uh, yeah, people who have problems with anxiety due to dexterity-based tasks, I can understand. Yeah, and for me, it's like, I'm actually not, I'm a, a, a decent Jenga player. I might even go as far as to say good. I'm not great. I'm not one of the greats. I'm never going to make it into the Jenga Hall of Fame. Um, Jenga World Cup. But like, I'm a pretty decent Jenga player. For me, it is my one big anxiety trigger point is like sudden loud noises. Ah, I don't like sudden loud noises. And I particularly in like when the loud noise happens, it doesn't mess with me as much as like I think it's going to happen. It's more the anticipation So when I see things like an unpopped balloon, particularly like a child playing with an unpopped balloon, or I see a Jenga tower, they are particular anxiety, particularly anxiety inducing to me because they like are this constant state of potential loud noise. Dear God, (laughs) it's a weird, it's a real weird one. Um, I know that. Um, But like I said, like if, if a kid pops a balloon, it doesn't end up bothering me like I think it will. But the whole time I'm like watching them play with it and knowing that it's a child playing with a balloon. So they are certainly going to pop it at some point, like bothers me on a fundamental level. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that about you, but it's good to know. (laughs) But so that is why, like, for me, Dread is a particularly horrifying game. Like on You Are Not Alone, when I was trying to think of like a way to scare me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have someone run something for me, it there was no like particular content. It was just that we need to play Dread because Dread makes me feel so fucking terrible just because I have to stare at a Jenga tower for hours. So yeah, that is my main uh, main horror trigger. Not not body horror like, oh, no. manipulation. Some Geiger stuff. That's all cool. No, I just recently I watched Shudder did a a Shudder original the Human Centipede horror. Marathon. 
Yes. No. Uh, horror anthology uh, movie is called like the Mortician's Tales or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like classic, like eighties creep show. Like here are three separate stories, and there's like a weird horror story happening in between those stories. And like in one of those, a dude's dick explodes. Um, oh. Very, very graphically. And I watched that. I was like, oh, no, that's uh, whatever. But a Jenga tower. <laughs> that, that's what does it for you. That's that is where that's where I draw the line, friends. Mm-hmm. I think we're going <laughs> to we're going to look into that later as a thing. OK, but yeah, so that's I, I think Dread is a good example of like a merger of the RPG and board game. Yeah. A way to get horror into board games, I guess, is yeah. create a board game that has anticipation for loud noises at the very least. Yeah, I think that's a good. That would be interesting. That's something we should think of as like a game design experiment. Sometimes, how do we make like a truly horrifying board game? Like, well, not a board game with horror horror themes. Just ones uh, that mess with people, but one that like is just horrifying to play. Oh, like you push a like have a thing set up in the middle, and like you push a button and something random might happen. Like one thing un like unlocks and a spider comes out. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Obviously, for for legal purposes, we can't do things like you know you press a button and a nail pops out and stabs you. <laughs> no, no, no. But spiders. Yeah, but spiders. Do. That's spiders, as long as they're non they're non poisonous. <laughs> Call it a game like Hey Spiders. <laughs> Oh gosh! Trademark that. Yeah, TM. Hey, spiders. Hey, uh, spiders. By the sloth, by the sloth boys. TM. Yeah. yeah. It's like, what? What's this game about? Well, randomly, they just release spiders. Why? It's a game. I don't know if that's what qualifies it as a game. Shut up. It's called that's, Hey Spiders. What did you expect? Yeah. Sometimes no spiders. Not, sometimes it's not spiders. Sometimes it's bees. <laughs> I think that does a pretty good job of covering some interesting horror games for folks to check out. And like I said, leading up to this, we are both big horror fanatics, so I'm sure that you will hear us talk about horror games more than you want to hear us talk about yeah. horror games. Um, and also check out, uh, go to our Kickstarter for Hey Spiders. <laughs> um, the first 10 backers get a Black Widow special collectible <laughs> <Yeah>. item. <laughs> do, not, do not open it, because it actually will have a Black Widow in it. <laughs> For legal reasons, we have to warn you ahead of time. You will be purchasing a Black Widow. No, I don't know how we're getting them, but we will. We'll get a whole mess of them. But yeah, if there are any topics, either in in fitness or in nerdery, that you would like to hear us talk about, reach out and let us know. We're always happy to appease our like three listeners. Thank you for listening to the Strength Save podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. A reminder, if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review us to let other folks know. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at StrengthSavePod. Our theme song is Drunken Sailor by Dr. Octorok, off the album Sham Rock. Check The Good Doctor out on Bandcamp. We'll be back in two weeks to talk more about health and games. Until then, keep doing what you're doing. You are awesome, and know that we believe in you.